an abundant entrance or scarcely saved. And the reason for this is oftentimes people look at these passages of Scripture and think that they're really contrary to each other. Now, just a little background. Um, over the years, and it's been several years, I've actually dealt with both of these passages separately. But for a long time now, I wanted to have a sermon that dealt with both of them and find out exactly what Peter, divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, was saying in each one of them. The first passage we want to notice is 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 11, where Peter says, For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I really don't know of a more encouraging passage as we look to the trials of our life and understand that Peter is saying that the child of God one day is going to have an abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom. But then again, what about this passage? What about 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 18, where Peter said, Now if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear. I got to tell you what I've always heard in my life uh, among some. And even as a little boy, I remember this. Somebody one time interpreted this passage from the pulpit like this. And said, the righteous, that's the Christian, that's true. The righteous is going to barely make it. In other words, you remember what Jesus said, and few there be that find it. So sometimes people look at that passage and they say, this is what it means. If the righteous is barely going to make it, in other words, just a few of us are going to get in. Then the sinner and the ungodly have absolutely no hope at all. But is that what he's talking about? And is that what scarcely means? Are both of these talking about the same event? Or is one of them talking about something else? We'll notice that in detail as we move along. But first of all, let's notice from Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. This is just before that uh, passage in our text. Peter said, but also for this reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. You know, we look at these Christian graces or these Christian virtues. This is very important because understanding these helps us to understand what Peter said directly out after that. And by the way, if you're looking for a passage of scripture that will help you practically live a Christian life, it is right here. If you want to know what the Lord wants from your life in terms of your growth, it's found right here from verses 5 to 7. Let's talk about them very briefly. We've done this in the past, so very briefly at this time. Here they are. He said, add to your faith virtue. And virtue literally means moral excellence. In other words, what you're doing is you are making excellent the quality of your spiritual life. You are changing yourself. You're not going to follow the ways of the world. And by the way, the Greek word that comes up with that word virtue is very, it's not very common in the Bible, but it's very common in secular Greek. And it literally means to perform heroic deeds. It means to do things that are excellent. What does Peter say? Add to your faith when you're baptized for the remission of your sins, add moral excellence. 
It has to be based on something, though, and that is knowledge. That word knowledge means correct insight. That means that you understand the word of God in the proper manner. And you properly apply it in your life too. This is a perfect understanding, if you look at the very definition of knowledge, that would shoot down any theory in the world where people would say, well, what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. This is knowledge of the word of God. It's correct insight of it. So I need to pursue moral excellence based on proper knowledge. You know what that's going to do? That's going to give me the strength to have self-control. Everybody needs self-control. It literally means to hold yourself in. Have you ever been angry? I don't know what your weaknesses are, but have you ever been angry and you didn't hold yourself in? And you didn't demonstrate self-control? And maybe you said something or did something that you shouldn't have because you were angry? If we pursue this, notice, based on proper knowledge, we're going to have the strength to have holding oneself in. Then perseverance, it leads to endurance. And that means literally to endure or do what's right. It'll be based on godliness, which is reverence. It's having a practical awareness of God in every aspect of your life. That'll be demonstrated in brotherly kindness, which is brotherly affection. And the ultimate is agape Self-sacrificing love. Okay, I was very brief about that. Let me be very brief about this too. Have you ever stopped to consider this is not just a one-time thing? And it doesn't just go in one direction? Notice how it goes the other way too. And this is very important in the context of what we're studying. If I have the proper agape love in my life, it will demonstrate itself in brotherly kindness. It'll be based upon having a practical awareness of God in every aspect of my life. It will do what? It'll give me the courage to persevere with endurance to do what's right. I will have the strength to hold myself in and have self-control. It'll be based on proper knowledge, correct insight of the word of God as I pursue moral excellence in my life. Very, very practical things. All right. All that being said, as we keep it in context, we go to the next two verses. This is what Peter said. If, you, if these things are yours and abound, what things? Those things. If these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Then in verse 10, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. That's the new King James. The King James says, you will never fall. Did, did you hear that? You will never fall. Now, this doesn't mean you will never sin. Everybody sins. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. If a man says he has no sin, the Bible says he's a liar and the truth is not in him. So we all have sin. It doesn't mean you'll never make a mistake. It means you will never fall. Notice, you will never stumble. 
In fact, Barnes says what this means is you will never stumble, meaning you shall surely be saved. So if we continue to grow in the knowledge of Christ, adding these virtues to our lives, then we have God's promise we will never fall. And this is one way we can know that we have eternal life. I love this passage. It's so encouraging. In 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Okay? Sometimes you know things because that's just your perception. Sometimes I might say that I know something, but it's just my perception. The problem is perception can be mistaken or perception can be wrong. The word know here in this passage is found 13 times in the epistle of 1 John. And it literally means this. It means to know for certain in the here and now. What's that mean? Does that mean that you can know you're saved? Yes, that means that. You can know that you are saved. Does that mean that when I go to bed tonight and I ask God to clear my slate and forgive me for anything perhaps that I have done, said or thought or left undone and ask God to forgive me of those things? Does that mean that I have confidence when I close my eyes that if the Lord comes back while I'm asleep, I get to go to heaven? Yes, that's exactly what that means. There's a difference, though, between assurance and arrogance. And there's a difference between confidence and conceit. You can have confidence. Got to make a point, though, about being saved. You know, the Bible talks about we are saved by grace. That's true. It doesn't contradict anything that we're saying here. We are saved by grace. Absolutely. And what that means is I could never deserve it or earn it. In fact, the Bible says that if I do all that is commanded or required of me, what am I? I am still deemed an unprofitable servant saved by grace. Let's understand what unprofitable servant literally means. It'd be like this. It'd be like if I, for example, hired Chris as a painter and I said, Chris, I'm going to pay you $10 an hour. And I go to work for Jack Holiday, and I contract out Chris's services. I'm going to pay Chris 10 But I tell Jack Holiday, uh, I'm going to charge you $30 an hour. Chris Osborne has just become a profitable servant to me. In other words, he is doing more for me than I'm doing for him. So what that means is when you talk about being a child of God, there's no way in the world that I could ever do more for Jesus than he's done for me. I cannot be of more value to Jesus than he is to me. Because without Jesus, I am lost. That's what that means. So what it's saying is we're still not going to deserve it. But we obey the word of God. And when we do, we need to understand we're still an unprofitable servant saved by grace. But this word know means to know for certain that we have eternal life. All right, we can believe in, the, in that very fact. Now, don't misunderstand me, please. Please hear what I'm saying. We don't believe and preach a doctrine of once saved, always saved, because that's unscriptural. Because a man can fall from grace and be lost. So a man can fall. Anybody can fall and be lost. I'm not preaching a doctrine of once saved, always saved, but let's be very careful not to also, or the flip side of that, preach a doctrine of once saved and forever lost. 
you can know you have eternal life. Now, there are conditions. In 1 John chapter 2, there are conditions. And we're going to sum it up in a, in a general passage. Now, by this, we know that we know him. Now, this word know is the same word right there. It means to know for certain. So what John is saying is, by this, we can know for certain that we know, meaning we have a relationship with. How many people in the world would love to have a relationship with God? How many people in the world think they have a relationship with God? But John said there's a condition. He said, this we may know for certain that we have a relationship with God if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. The love of God is perfected in him. Hold that thought for just a minute. I'm going to get to that phrase in, in just a second. But first of all, two things. Keeping his commandments is the same thing as keeping his word. And keeping his word is the same thing as keeping his commandments. Do you know why? God's word is in his commandments and God's commandments is in his word. That's the condition. God commands are expressed in his word. This is a perpetual action. But what about this phrase right here? The love of God is perfected in him. Now, you can read various scholars I have on this very sentence. And sometimes they are at odds with one another as to what he's talking about. For example, is this saying, is this God's love for man or is this man's love for God? Well, let's notice what it says. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. Is that God's love for man? Well, let's take a look at it. In John chapter 3 and verse 16, the Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. When did God love us? When we were yet sinners. And when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Okay, So it cannot mean that my obedience to God perfects God's love for me. It has to mean my love for God. Has to. In fact, by the way, this is actually better rendered. The love for God is perfected in Him. When you keep His commandments. Your love for God is perfected in you. It's proof of your love. And the word perfected there, by the way, means to be fully developed. Fully developed. Talk about love for just a minute. You know, love is a greater motivator than fear, don't you think? All the years of coaching, I've known a lot of coaches that were loud. And over the years, I got less and less loud. And sometimes coaches, especially old school coaches, they coached where the motivating factor was driven by fear. In other words, make the player afraid of you, and therefore he'll perform. All that does is make the player play tight, uptight, tense, nervous. And by the way, you will do greater things out of love than you will ever do out of fear. Absolutely. I believe that. I believe that you will get more out of a person 
when they do it out of love and respect than if they're afraid of you. And that's what the Bible's talking about here. We get to the point in our Christian growth, our Christian life where we've grown in Christ. And guess what? Now everything we do is motivated and driven by our love for God. We're going to do greater things. Now I will say this. When you obey the gospel, you hear the gospel preached and you realize I'm in a lost condition. Aren't you a little bit afraid of that because you don't want to be lost? Sure. But as you grow in Christ, love starts taking over. Love takes over fear. Love is the motivating factor. And by the way, when you do that, it is perfected in you. It is fully developed. Now, when you do all of that, let's go back to 2 Peter 1 and 11. I love this. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, let me just ask you something really quickly. Does that right there look like just barely squeak in? Does that look like barely make it to you? Don't you see here? The entrance is supplied abundantly into the everlasting kingdom. In other words, we supply the virtues abundantly and God supplies the entrance in the same way. When these things abound. And by the way, abound means exist in large quantities or large amounts. Abundantly is extreme quantities. So our part is large amounts of obedience. God's part is large amounts of entrance into the everlasting kingdom. Okay. You might be wondering, and there's a lot of misunderstandings today about things that Daniel spoke of. Chris preached on Daniel not long ago. I just want to notice one passage because I want to notice what is this everlasting kingdom? What is the connection with that to Daniel chapter 2? In Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. That's the church. Which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom, that's the church, shall not be left to other people. It shall break into pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And get this, and it shall stand forever. The everlasting kingdom of 2 Peter 1 and 11 refers to the end of the world when the kingdom in Daniel 2.44, the church, will be delivered back again to the Father. Now, Daniel foretold of a time of an indestructible kingdom established on earth, and that is the church. The kingdom is indestructible. It will always exist. It will continue to exist, and it's what Jesus will hand over to his Father. It will abide forever. You know, I find some really encouraging things about this. Don't ever think for one minute that the church is going anywhere. It's not. Now, I know that sometimes members of the church, they fall by the wayside. They fall away. Maybe they turn their back on what's right. But the church itself, the church as a whole, that is the kingdom that Daniel prophesied about. And that's what will be handed over to the Father in the end. The church is going nowhere. It is indestructible. It will last forever. And that's why Peter calls it an everlasting kingdom. Regardless of hard times. You may remember this. Some of you older folks might remember times in life when things were really bad. And sometimes we that are younger, we think we understand things that are bad. We don't have a clue. Not in this country. We don't even have a clue. 
We don't know what a hard time is, not really. And even the older folks that might remember a time back in the Depression or back in other periods of time, and there were persecution, there was things that went on, there was hard times. And the church always what? It always grew. Have you ever considered that every time there's hard times, the church grew in history? You know why? It's not going anywhere. And it doesn't matter what a man thinks he can do. He can't destroy it. Cannot. Cannot. It will last forever. Okay. So what happened between Daniel's prophecy and what Peter said when he said about the everlasting kingdom? Abundant entrance. Let me notice five quick things. First of all, number one, Daniel, Joel, and Isaiah all prophesied about the establishment of the kingdom. That's the church. Many years later, John the Baptist, what did he say? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that phrase, at hand, literally means close enough that you can touch it. It can be perceived by the senses. It's that close. Then what happened? Here comes Jesus Jesus comes on the scene. He also says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, close enough to touch it. But Jesus adds some things too. Jesus then says, some of you will still be living when you see the kingdom of God come with power. It's going to come in their lifetime. Long, long time ago. What else? Acts chapter 2. The very first gospel sermon was being preached to those that now had an opportunity to respond to it. And they were offered the gospel. They were offered the plan of salvation. They were baptized for the remission of their sins. 3,000 souls were saved. And Jesus added them daily to the kingdom or the church. And finally, from Acts chapter 2 on, this kingdom, folks, don't let people think there's a kingdom coming. The kingdom is always spoken of as already in existence. So the point for us is this, to be in the everlasting kingdom that we've talked about, you got to be in the kingdom or the church today in this life. The kingdom will be delivered back over to the father when he comes in 1 Corinthians 15 and 24. Notice then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom, that's the church, to God the father when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. So, an abundant entrance, everlasting. And you know why it's everlasting? It's everlasting because it's eternal. You know, God gave us the concept of time. But God doesn't care about time. God is not concerned about time. He gave time for us. He wants us to redeem the time. He wants us to make good use of the time. But time is something for us. It's not for God. God does not deal with time. He doesn't care about time. But when you talk about everlasting, you are talking about something that is eternal. You're talking about something you cannot count. Cannot count. And you know why it's everlasting? Here it is. Those that are saved forever in eternity will have no worries at all. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great to finally not have a worry or a care in the world? Think about all the stress you might have and all the worry you have. Get this. If you make heaven, you are going to be saved and you will have no worries. But on the other hand, those that are lost will have no hope for all eternity. So 
That is the phrase, abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom. So, what does the phrase mean, scarcely saved? What's that mean? Well, first of all, does scarcely saved mean, is it referring to the end of time? When it says, if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the sinner and the ungodly appear? Is that the end of time? No. No, it is not. It's referring to something else. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 17. Please notice the context and stay with the flow here. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Now, Peter is talking about, he is writing this letter in about A.D. 65 or possibly A.D. 66. He is writing about an event that's about to happen in A.D. 70. They were understanding the fact that they were under great persecution. He's writing this letter about A.D. 65, about something that's going to happen in A.D. 70. What's the event then? The event is the destruction of Jerusalem. That's the event. The destruction of Jerusalem. Now, Jesus spoke of this event too. In Matthew chapter 24. Notice this is Jesus predicting the destruction of the temple. And beginning in verse 1, verse 1 and 2. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now. Here comes verse number three. And verse number three is their response to what Jesus just said in verses one and two. Very important to stay with the context. Very important. So here comes verse three. This is so misunderstood in the religious world. Here it is. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when these things be. What's these things? Those things. Those things. What shall these things be? When is it going to happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Incidentally, the King James says the end of the world. So people say, oh, what's the sign of the end of the world? No, that word is better rendered age. Notice, they ask three questions. Please get this. This is not two events. They're not asking questions about two events. They're asking questions about one event. What's the event? What Jesus just said in verses 1 and 2. They ask the following questions about that one event. Tell us when these things be. What things? What he just said in verse 1 and 2. What else? And what will be the sign of your coming? That is a phrase oftentimes used in the Bible referring to judgment or vengeance. What's he talking about? What vengeance? What judgment? What he said in verses 1 and 2. Talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And the third question, what's going to be the end of the age? Tell us those things. Three questions, one event. 
Now, Jesus gave the following. He gave five remote signs, and he gave one immediate sign. Now, remember this to all those that want to apply these words to the end of time. Show us the end of time and all of that. Jesus gave five remote signs and one immediate sign to the event that they were inquiring about, and that is the destruction of Jerusalem. Okay. Here's number one. Here's number one. There were going to be false Christs. In Matthew 24, verses 4 and 5. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. That's the first sign. That's going to happen, Jesus said. That's a remote sign. Okay? Here's another one. There's going to be wars. You know what people do? Oh, look, look, the wars. It's going to happen. The end of time's coming. Is that what he's talking about? Matthew 24, verse 6. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Here's another one. How about this? Famines. Famines. For it, it's in verses 7 and 8. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. Get this. And all these are the beginning of sorrows. What else? How about affliction? Verses 9 and 10. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Again, these were remote signs. But then there's another one. There's another one. And by the way, this one makes it absolutely proof positive that it's referring to something that happened in the first century and is not going to be something that's going to happen later on. This is it. You know what it is? Divine inspiration. How do I know that? Mark's account, Mark 13 and 11. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Here's another one. In Luke 21, 14 and 15. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. All of this happened, obviously, in the first century. In addition, in addition, before Jerusalem fell, the gospel was preached to all the world. Do you consider that? Before Jerusalem fell in AD 70, the gospel was preached to the whole world. Matthew 24 and 14. And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. Well, the end is the destruction of Jerusalem. These were the remote signs. What about the immediate sign? I love this. And by the way, just watch from now on through the rest of the lesson. Watch the handiwork of God. Because I believe that none of these things were possible without God. He gave them five remote signs. You know what he's telling them? You're going to be persecuted. You're going to have some hard times. It's going to happen. And even God's people are going to be persecuted. 
But here are the remote signs. And when you see these remote signs, understand they are a sign of that day, but the end is not near. Now he's going to give an immediate sign. How are we going to know, Lord? How are we going to know when it's actually going to come? Here is the immediate sign. Matthew 24 and 15. I love this. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. This right here means standing in Jerusalem. Holy place there is a phraseology referring to Jerusalem. What he's saying is, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in Jerusalem, he told him to flee. He told him to flee. Look at Luke's account. Luke 21. Look at this. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know it's the desolation, its desolation is near. Then let those that are in Judea flee. Where? To the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart and let those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. That's the immediate sign. He said, when you see the armies coming, get out and flee. And by the way, misunderstanding this passage and trying to make it to the end of time is the reason that sometimes people in the religious world have sold their possessions. Oh, I'm going to look around. It's kind of bad going on. Bad stuff going on today. Bad stuff going on today. I'm selling my possessions. Lord must be coming back. There's wars. There's famines. There's pests. All that. And go stand on a mountaintop only to have to walk back down. You know why? Because they try to make that passage mean the end of time. They try to make the end of time something that you can attach signs to. That's not what the Bible says. In fact, the Bible says nobody knows when that day is going to be except the Father only. So when the Lord comes back, we don't see signs. We have something else. The Bible says it's like a thief in the night. Unannounced. But the signs here were regarding the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus said these words in Luke 21 and 80, 33. Okay? Now fast forward in your mind to AD 65. Five years before the ultimate destruction and persecution is on Peter's mind. His pen is guided by the Holy Spirit and he spreads ink on parchment. And this is what he says. Stay in the context with me. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 16. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. As though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you are partaker of Christ's sufferings. And when his glory is revealed. You may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ. Blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed. But on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer. As a thief. And no evildoer or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. He said all that, and here's our text. He said all that, and here's our text. Persecution was on his mind, AD 65, and then he said this. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God... And if it begins with us first, 
Then will be the end of those things who do not obey the gospel. And then there's this. Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? That's the context. Watch this, though. This right here does not mean barely and a few of us. That is a misinterpretation of the word scarcely. Scarcely means with difficulty. That's what that means. What he's saying is, if the Christians in that time in AD 70 are going to, with difficulty, be spared and not go down to the destruction of Jerusalem, where's that going to leave the ungodly? And where's that going to leave the sinner? If the righteous one is scarcely saved. James McKnight says it like this. When God thus punishes the nation, if the righteous Jews who believe in Christ, that's Christians, with difficulty can be saved from the destruction in Jerusalem, where will the ungodly and the sinful part of the nation show themselves saved from divine vengeance? Some of you have heard me say, as we wrap up our lesson, of what happened. And I, again, I, this has to be the hand of God. This is amazing. Josephus records, and he was there. Josephus records that when Rome came and took Jerusalem, he said that 1.1 million Jews were killed. He said 110,000 more were taken captive. But then he said, for whatever reason, this is how he said it, but for whatever reason, Rome pulled back. The armies of Rome pulled back. And Josephus, a historian, said, and every Christian got out. Scarcely saved. With difficulty, every Christian got out. Now, Josephus didn't know, I would imagine, why Rome pulled back. But why not give it the credit that it's due? Rome pulled back, I believe, because that's exactly what God wanted. How did they know? How were they prepared? You know why they were prepared? Because 37 years before, Jesus said, here are five remote signs and an immediate sign. And when you see the immediate sign, get out. And that's what they did. And you know what God did? He just had old Rome pull back a little bit. And the Christians got out. So. So. Applying to us today. That passage, the righteous scarcely being saved, is not talking about the end of time. It's not talking about eternity. It's not talking about the Christian today. What is talking about the Christian today is what Peter said about the seven Christian graces or virtues. If these are things that are in my life and they are abounding in my life, then this. We will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. So, what else are we going to have? If we do these things, we are not going to stumble. Ever. We're not going to fall. We're not going to fall away. 
And finally, for an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, I don't know how it's going to be. You know, I've heard people say, you know, I'll just be a, sweet, a street sweeper in heaven. I would too. Or I, I just want to barely make it in. If I can just barely squeak in, that's all I want. I just want to get in. You know, I feel that way too, but that's not what's going to happen. If I make it, it will be an abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom. That's what it says. I don't know how to put that. Blow the doors off. I don't know. But it's an abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom. Can you know you're saved? Yeah. Keep his word. Keep his commandments. Keep those things in your life. Have Jesus Christ be the advocate with the Father when we sin. Ask God to forgive us and the blood of Christ washes that sin away too. Yes, yes, we can know with assurance that we have eternal life. Are we keeping his word? Are we keeping his commandments? Are we obeying what he said to do in our Christian life? But before all that, the only way that all of those things become a benefit to you is first of all, you got to contact the blood. Without blood, without being covered by the blood, you can't be saved. The way to be saved is simply by being covered by the blood. How do you do that? You come believing in Jesus. You repent of your sins. You make a change in your life. You confess the precious name of Jesus Christ. You say the words, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Those are steps that point toward or lead to the point of salvation. But the only way you're saved is in baptism. When you go down to the watery grave of baptism. 1 Peter 3.21, the like figure whereunto, even baptism doth also now save us. You know why? That's when you get the blood. And that's the only place you get the blood. And then you have it for the rest of your life. And if you live faithfully in the death, you know what you're going to get? An abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.